also feel like in a world where big studio pictures are getting lost in the visuals, you know, to make a good film, you don't need VFX. You just need to make a really emotionally resonant film. You're listening to the Can't Sell This podcast, dedicated to projects past that never saw the light of day. With your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. And welcome to another episode of Can't Sell This. I'm happy to say I've got a good friend, Richard, who's going to be on our show tonight as a guest. And I'm flying solo tonight as Hugh and I are both tackling separate guests on the same night. Richard, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey, I'm uh, Richard Rotter. I'm an Emmy-nominated director and editor. I've been kind of uh, moving between the worlds of film and television uh, I'm an event producer here in Toronto as well, live event producer before COVID. Uh, and then um, over the last like year and a half, I've been getting, kind of getting into multi-platform narrative content that has been marrying my film and editing and directing like skills um, with some live action um, theatrical performances, oh. plus an added like gamified component. So uh, I'm sure that sounds a bit like your jam. Happy to talk about it. Uh, it's been really exciting to kind of get into that because I think it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's been just a really fascinating um, way to learn new skills and just an exciting new frontier, I guess. That I've been yeah, for. and I mean, when you came from factual television, you came from, from a lot of, I don't want to say- wanting reality. to be a lawyer. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I moved to Toronto back in 03 uh, with the aspirations of wanting to be a lawyer. So I went to U of T and then got my uh, Bachelor of Arts, the useless degree. Um, but by the end of that, I kind of like realized I'd started to uh, direct uh, some content with a really good friend of mine who's still like a business partner to this day. His name is David German. Um, and we shot a bunch of short films in our third and fourth year. And then by my fourth year, I ended up meeting a producer who got me onto my first feature. And then from there, my career has kind of been this weird nomadic, yeah, as you say, going from factual into kids and then into more dramatic thriller um, and horror elements more recently, which has been a really fascinating ride. So, and yeah, such a, such a sharp turn from kids content. I've always felt that turn a little bit um, like whiplashy. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, there's definitely an element to that, but I also grew up, you know, I'm a product of the eighties. So mm-hmm. I loved my um, scary kids movies. So like, right. and I'm talking, I'm not talking about horror films. I'm talking about the ones that really left you with nightmares, like labyrinth, uh, the never ending story. I mean, the, the horse dying in the bog of despair still mm. to this day, uh, you know, gives me nightmares in my sleep. Um, but, and those were just really formative years for me that I loved the marriage of kids and really an exploration of evil um, in, in, I would say in a safe way. But I mean, now those films wouldn't ever be made. I mean, obviously because they're, they're quite dark and um, maybe considered, you know, adult content in some ways. Yeah. So, and to speak to that just for a moment, um, I, met a, a graphic novelist, uh, like a artist writer uh, by the name of Kazu Kibuishi. And he, one of the books that he created was, uh, is called Amulet. It's a book series. 
and it starts off extremely dark. And I mean, this isn't any real spoilers. In the first few pages, there's a, a car accident. Uh, a family's on on a, on a road trip, and there's a car accident, and and uh, the father dies. And it's it's dark, and you can't you can't pull punches with kids. They'll know when you're doing it, and they don't like it. They don't like being treated like a kid. They they are they are hungry for this type of content for emotionally resonating content. And if it's dark, that's okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think also too, it's maybe a matter of framing it too, is like, is, look, the death of parents is tragic and awful. Um, but like the qualification of it being dark, I mean, ultimately death is a part of life. And, um, you know, would we rather kids learn this through cartoons and through movies that they can talk through with their parents to make sense of it, as opposed to going through life and never knowing about this concept mm-hmm. death is, uh, and then being faced with in a very real way with like a parent actually dying, you know, like I remember the first film I saw in theaters was Bambi, mm-hmm. Bambi dies, you know, or like the never ending story, mom dies, like all of these formative kids movies where the parent often finding Nemo often dies um, is, is really hard, but it's, it's, it's a reality. Uh, and I think there's, there's, there's a way that a lot of these kids movies, especially try and handle it in a in a, a way that prepares kids for the real world and to ask questions you know like what happened to that so that mom and dad can sit down or whatever the makeup is of the parents can sit right. down a child and like tell them talk to them and i think that's really important so to me and that's where this idea of like horror uh and like kids movies like i love when you're able to find something in that world that really works because i think that you're allowed to use your imagination a lot of ways. And like, you have to tell a really genuine, honest story for these kids to understand, Mm -hmm. because you're right, they screw it when it's not genuine. Having that sort of like, that influence in in kids' content, but then also for you as in your career, having moved through those different genres, um, it must be really freeing to be able to just create and not be tied or be specifically known for one type of genre. I can't imagine having to be known for just comedy. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think on the one hand, I've really enjoyed the worlds that I've entered through not being tied down to one particular genre. So like going out to Vegas and shooting with uh, <laughs> rat rod making car mechanics in the middle of the desert, uh, filming with and getting a real honest uh, understanding of addiction through filming like with intervention and then going into, you know, terrific trucks, this weird, uh, wonderful world of construction trucks, uh, working as a team in like a real life massive base, um, all really have provided some really wonderful arenas to explore. And I've really loved that. I love world building. That's something that really um, appeals to me. Uh, and bringing audiences into new worlds. And then even with my feature film, Sideboob, like getting into the underground dance world and exploring toxic masculinity through that, that was a really exciting world that I know not a lot of people outside of my bubble have really seen. But then on the other hand, you know, and even in this last year of COVID, something that I've been exploring is like, what is my identity? How do I identify myself? You know, who am I? And part of me has wondered too, and I think that's why I've kind of got started to really explore more of this horror thriller world because while it's nice to be known that I can do different genres, 
there's also still an element that's really strong about, oh, that's the guy who can do horror. And so he's the go-to as opposed to he's the person that can right. do anything, which sure, I feel like I've done everything kind of well, but uh, I'm still not the go-to necessarily mm -hmm. on a specific thing. Whereas I also feel like because of you know the 80s growing up with those movies, I love horror films. I've always kind of felt that that's maybe where I should end up, but I've been resistant to that a bit because horror is still, you know, uh, got its stigma around it and hasn't necessarily been taken seriously uh, in some regards. And in others, it has been a really wonderful exploration of like social commentary. So, and that's where I'm starting to really like find my niche, I think, um, you know, not to label it too specifically, like mm -hmm, smart, mm -hmm. smart horror as a, like glorification or all those kind of things so yeah i think i'm of two minds but i think like now having gone through those different worlds i think i really do want to start focusing my energy a bit more in terms of uh, a specific genre and also like honing my craft in that genre yeah really but then the, the flip side of that is having had a breadth of different styles and genres that you've worked in even if you do now focus let's say on horror you can take from the different like from intervention you can take those stories and the things that you've learned from watching this you know like what is essentially like a real horror story or, or i i can just i can imagine how that that knowledge or that experience can now drip down into your horror story and your and your direction of horror and and the understanding or greater understanding of i guess your audience or hu of humanity even uh can then flavor that mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I've tried to be more mindful of, and I think, as you're saying, kind of like all these experiences have just built more empathy in within me to um, just really try to, especially mm -hmm. in character building, like really trying to get into the mindset of like these characters and not trying to see people as good or evil, just human. And that ultimately, like we all have our own motivations and make mistakes and all that kind of stuff but ultimately at its core like there's still goodness and sure if you want to use mm -hmm, the word evil mm -hmm. like in all of us right and exploring that is like a three-dimensional character and within a world as well how we all perceive things people differently um and what impact that reality versus per perception has over our interactions yeah absolutely not just in character but when you said world building i was thinking oh it's it's interesting how you still have to world build when you're creating uh, a factual film or television show or a documentary you still have to understand the world that you're getting yourself into and then convey that to the audience and um with with intervention or with even with the with the rat rod the vegas rat rods like how, how you even begin to prepare for something like that? Yeah, two very different <laughs> shows. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting. Intervention was one of the first shows I worked on. I was quite young. Uh, I was like in my mid twenties and really had no experience with addiction whatsoever. And so I think that I've always tried to come at my projects with a lot of humility. And when I don't understand something or don't know it, just listening as best I can. And a lot of shooting on, like filming on intervention was listening. A lot of the people, whether or not it was the subject or the family, like were in a place where they didn't feel heard or seen. And so oftentimes just being able to sit there and listen 
uh, I think that listening is such an important lesson. Even my producer, Karen Wookie on that really taught me like it's all about listening and in our daily interactions, listening to what someone actually says, giving space for listening properly, I think is just a skill that everyone needs to work on. And so with that, with intervention, I think that's what it really helped me get into that world and just a lot of patience. Um, and also just being mindful too, it's mm -hmm. a TV show. And in those moments of like, constantly just remembering you're filming with a human and being mindful of like, you know what, whatever I'm filming with, there's, there's certain boundaries that I'm willing to work within. And there were times when I would just stop the camera, you know, when someone was like potentially going to hurt themselves or I'm not here to exploit. Uh, it's really about trying to build a genuine connection um, that I feel is always like quite important to me. And then Vegas rat rods, you know, Vegas, like that was really just like a bombastic, wild Mad Maxian type world that I was filming in. And I mean, all the characters that were just like loud and proud. Um, and and it was it was very surreal in a lot of ways um and so you know the one thing you mentioned too like in terms of world building like i think ultimately like the most important thing for me too is the mm -hmm. rules right and that's clear that you, that you can break the rules once a time but like once in a while but like your audience has to understand what those rules are otherwise they can't understand your world and so, you know, really figuring out the rules in that world, which was like, how do we make these vehicles in this amount of days? How do you find the pieces, all that kind of stuff? What are you willing to do to succeed? We're all like really fascinating um, parts of the world building that I, that I really loved in that space for sure. Um, yeah. It was wild. <laughs> that was six months living in Vegas. Was Unbelievable. Yeah. And, I, and again, like, you, you know, the, when we say, oh, those characters, like, I think people understand what, what we mean when, when we're talking about, like, you know, a living, breathing human. They're, they're still, they have characteristics that are, like you said, loud and proud, just very larger than life yeah. uh, or, or the opposite direction. But you, you understand the characteristics of that person that makes them a character. Uh, and what's what's fascinating to me mm -hmm. is as a director or a camera operator, you also have to not only listen, but you have to, you must have to you know, know where to put that camera and understand and have kind of, I guess, like a heightened situational awareness, especially when you're dealing with something that's mm -hmm. unscripted. And I don't think, yeah. I don't think yeah. on, um, on Can't Sell This, we've talked to somebody who's really done a lot of work in unscripted before. Uh, and very often we talk mm -hmm. about creativity as a, as as the process, or when we talk to people about their process, it is about this sort of scripting and creating and 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 um, sculpting of a story or a character. I think that still exists. I'm guessing that still exists in in factual, but in a different way. Like, how do you know what to film? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's a it, it is a very different. Um, skill to have in there there's definitely a level of patience because you're what you're preparing for is really you know especially on a show like intervention preparing is really was you getting to know the subject was building a relationship and ultimately like that show is unscripted the only thing that was scripted uh using air quotes here was the intervention mm -hmm. was this was to get the, that person to the room and you know then the people read their letters and stuff like that but a week in the life of someone suffering from addiction is a wild, crazy ride, especially when you throw mm -hmm. a camera into the mix. 
And so, um, but it's ultimately about patience. I mean, I, I remember an episode uh, two years ago, uh, this is gonna get dark for All a right. moment, if that's okay. <laughs> um, but but I worked out in the end, but on the first day filming with um, uh, the individual out in BC, he separated his shoulder going down a hill on like a mountain bike. And that was, there was no story there. We were just going around filming some stuff, just getting used to the camera. Day two, uh, he OD'd in front of me uh, on heroin. And I had to administer two naloxone kits. Um, and thankfully he was okay. That was one of the scariest moments of my life, uh, watching someone like literally die in front of me. Uh, and, um, and in that moment, like there's no preparing for that other than preparing in a sense of like mm -hmm. how to administer naloxone. Never, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird world that I, I think back on that ultimately, like I didn't ever think that was going to happen to me. Uh, a level of like ignorant invincibility. Like I'm filming that there's, of course it's not gonna happen, but this is the time when like fentanyl mm -hmm. people were ODing all the time. And there was definitely, there was potentially fentanyl in, in what was mixed in there. And so, you know, in that, with the story, that was just a matter of patience and following along. And then after that, obviously like, uh, usually things ramp up quite a bit in the week filming with someone on that show, um, just because of heightened awareness and like family members and all that. But like the climax, if you will, happened on day two. And so that was really, um, a lot of just patience and a lot of like listening and, uh, you know, one of the things I really learned early on on that show is like, you can't fall the puck. You're going to lose the story. You really have to just like trust your gut and stick with, you know, what, what's what, yeah. Your, 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 your situational awareness, what is happening right now? What is the most important thing? And where's the emotional resonance happening in this moment? You know, is it most of the time it's with the subject that you're filming with, this is their story. Um, and so that's that's definitely that those that's a challenging time because you are trying to focus like what's my image and then trying to have awareness going on around you and this weird moment when you're in your when you're looking at your viewfinder you're watching TV ah. at that point mm -hmm. reality is playing in front of you and so you're trying to flip between the two of them um, and trying to be true to the story that's happening at the same time kind of like outside and inside the frame. Um, and that, uh, I feel like I managed to master that in some ways. Do you think um, that that kind of, uh, that, that experience or that ability, like the, being able to, uh, you know, capture unscripted story and, and know what, you know, what is the most important thing that's happening here? And then has that, influenced or somehow enhanced the way that you now think about direction when you work with something where you have full control over a script? Yes. Um, I think just like being out in spaces with real people just really taught me to reflect on what are the emotional beats in the scene and just making sure that like though those emotional beats resonate with each character then and then are like translated into the, the frame to then connect with the audience because ultimately in every scene like you need to connect with your audience in some way you may not connect with everyone 
it may not resonate with everyone, but you need to be able to touch certain people. And so it's about finding your in because ultimately if you can't find the emotional beat or emotional arc in a scene, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's the scene about? Mm -hmm. Why, why are we shooting this? Why are we filming this? Um, your audience is going to lose interest. And I think that those skills really, you know, in those moments, trying to trust my gut and like, what do I find interesting about this right now has then kind of proliferated into script, uh, you know, work, directing, working with actors and really just trying to build that emotional resonance and like emotional rela relatability, I think is, is really what it comes down to in those stories. So tell me a little bit about side boob. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Sideboo was um, my uh, feature film that I shot three years ago. Um, it's about a dance floor king in Toronto who on the eve of the closing of his favorite club, it's especially relevant now with like all of my favorite dance yeah. spaces closing oh. and the one that we filmed, the one that we filmed Sideboob at just, filmed, just closed a month ago. Oh no. Yeah, so um, it really, you know, it's it's fascinating thinking about now. It really explored a very special time in Toronto before mm -hmm. this all happened. Um, that kind of like explores the party, the underground party scene in Toronto uh, within the bubble of like Burning Man kind of like vibrancy and values uh, and really uh, and unpacked how I was exploring toxic masculinity at that time in the sense of like, you know, my relationship with women, power dynamics and the men that were around me and what kind of influences I wanted to have, uh, you know, looking back on like the kind of like suburban white upbringing that I had and everything that I'd learned from my friends in the world around me in Toronto in the last 15 years, I think was at its core, like what I was trying to explore in that film um and as a you know a small indie film that we shot for a hundred grand like it i was really proud i'm i am really proud of it it really connected with a lot of people did it did pretty well on the indie festival circuit um and uh it, it just that that's one of the for me like you know i'm in such an incredible community that really does have a lot of these conversations around toxic masculinity mm -hmm. power mm -hmm. dynamics misogyny, all that kind of stuff that um, I was excited to kind of get more of that conversation out through film. Yeah. And I mean, uh, like you said, it was, it, I already mentioned that it was shot on a hundred thousand dollars. Like that, like we're talking like that's beyond indie budget. Like that's, that's very, very, very small. Yeah. That was, that was yeah. post and everything. Yeah. That was, did you get funding for that or is yeah. that something that where you just, wow. No, we just privately funded it. Yeah. Just, you yep. know, credit cards yep. and, uh it's 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 interesting because it was one of those things we kind of explored mm -hmm. going through telefilm but the content itself I, I feel like was just too edgy in certain ways for what a telefilm would want to explore um and was in an interesting time too because basically we started shooting in January right after me too. Right. And so at that point two conversations weren't really, uh, around, uh, it, it was a time of mm -hmm. listening to women. And, uh, so it was a really interesting transitionary time in terms of how we've been having these discussions to be getting in there at that moment. 
really exploring toxic masculinity through the from the perspective of men that I feel like now there's more space for. One hundred percent. You know, and, and which is which is fine. It was just you know just a part of the time, mm-hmm. uh, but has definitely influenced the, the stories that I continue to tell. And even you know as we're talking about horror, like how I want to explore horror. I've written a few shorts in the last month. Uh, and two of them specifically have to do deal with consent, misogyny, power dynamics um, in a really subtle way. And I think that horror really allows you to uh, engage audiences that might not really gravitate towards that content in a really uh, relevant and um, attractive way. I've been looking at um, sort of this, there was this discussion about how so many films now are based on a book or a comic book or something else. I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole like sequels and remakes, but mm-hmm. um, one point that was, was mentioned that I thought was really interesting was like a lot of things are based on comics or on books or on short stories, but that the, the creators themselves created this idea of, I can't get a film made so I'm going to make a, write a book and try to sell that through as like a proof of concept for a film. Mm-hmm. And then the, the conversation went into this whole, you know, like shorts on YouTube where people, uh, like, I don't know if you remember, um, oh, Kin, sci-fi movie Kin that came out a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018, uh, but it's based on a short film called Bagman. And two brothers wrote and directed Bagman, and then they ended up being uh, writers. They got someone else to direct for the feature film. And you can see how this short film was expanded upon concept wise, but the sort of all the the sort of like key elements are still there, but it was was expanded to become more of a feature film. Mm -hmm. Look at Lights Out. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he went on to direct Shazam. Yep. Uh, only four or five years later, you yeah. know, and that, that film at its core is so simple and wonderful and shot for nothing mm-hmm. and is essentially one person. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, he's super talented. Uh, there's definitely been this sort of like ra- raised quality of the prosumer product. Uh, so when I, when we, when I talk now to people about the, the shoestring budget films, I mean, you're definitely getting a lot more quality out of mm-hmm. that shoestring budget now than, than you were maybe five, 10 years ago. Um, and then, you know, there's now more opportunity for ind- very independent filmmakers and writers to, to get their stories out there. There's platforms like YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, there's the prosumer uh, products that you can buy for, you know, under 10 grand, you can buy yourself enough stuff to make a really good film. And if you watch all the sort of tutorial stuff on, on YouTube where they talk about, you know, it's about lighting, it's about, uh, you know, editing. Like if you can do all that stuff on your home computer uh, and have the right, you know, like lighting sources, you can make a pretty decent looking film for next to nothing. It's just sweat equity that you got to put into it. Um, so how, where do you see maybe, you know, like the next five to 10 years, you know, let's, let's not sort of take the pandemic into consideration for this, but um, like a two man film crew, I don't know if you saw, and I wish I could remember the name of this short too, but it's, uh... so it's a short film called The Statement 
uh, and it is uh, uh, Zachary Levy and I believe the 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 guy who created it filmed it in his backyard, right? And they filmed it with a two man or three man crew, like very minimal. They filmed it during the pandemic, but they made things work just because of this using what they had available and creating something that actually looks quite stunning. Um, and to me, that is potentially one way where we are starting to, you know, find a way out of this pandemic and find our way into potentially a very different uh, industry where there's a lot more independent, a lot more low budget things happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of resources, incredible resources these days. I mean, you know, I just started cutting a short film on Da Vinci Resolve and it's free and it's a super professional program. Um, you're right. You, I mean, fil films are being shot on iPhones these days. iPhones are great. Um, we definitely have all the resources. And I also feel like in a world where big studio pictures are getting lost in the visuals, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to go on my diatribe about how terrible I think the Star Wars films were. Um, but like, those are an example of a studio having an incredible amount of money and just completely botching the story uh, and relying too much on visuals. And I think that, you know, there's a degree of audiences getting tired of that. And so, you know, to make a good film, you don't need VFX. You just need to make a really emotionally resonant film. And we do have those resources. Even the one, the shorts that I'm talking about, I am thinking about how to create them in this COVID pod. Um, you know, one of them is like, we've been spending tons of time on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in conversations that I've been having with like a lot of younger filmmakers, people are starting to explore different formats, you know, shooting in portrait mode, a film. Everyone's like, well, you can't do that. You have to shoot in 16 by nine. Why? Why? Yeah. We, we're on our phones looking at a portrait mode all the time. Um, I mean, Quibi uh, <laughs> unfortunately really bombed, but I think that was partially due to, you know, the state of the world at that point. Well, I mean, you don't need stars mm -hmm. to get people watching things. I mean, how many people watch cat and dog videos all days and those rack up millions and millions of views. And then even on like uh, TikTok, for instance, seeing the VFX that people are pulling in that require no money whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, people are just getting incredibly creative. And um, so there is a lot of excitement. Uh, and then ultimately, it always just, anyone can do it. It just comes down to you doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's even that horror, that, that feature film that came out, uh, I haven't seen it yet, called Host, um, that was filmed all through a Zoom and was on Shutter. And they shot it during the pandemic. And I think it's eight people. And it's a feature length film. And, you know, we can all say, oh, I mean, it's a tough time, granted, but some people are still able to figure it out and do it. And I applaud them for that. I think it's amazing. And that's what I'm trying to do with these shorts. Um, and that's also kind of what I've been doing with like the event series that I've been. Right. You know, yeah. On. So that um, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. The um, uh, combining theater. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, I, uh, I'm co-partners with two other people uh, on a, an event series called Planet Fabulon, 
which essentially is uh, we've created this sci-fi planet world that people were either always transported to or Fabulon came to visit. And that, that world is all inclusive. Um, its values are all around consent um, and really trying to build communal experiences that we can share and learn and have fun together and play. I think play is so important and we as adults forget about that. And so the, that event series really tries to uh, get particularly adults, but we, you know, they're, they're all ages events, uh, get adults to back into play mode. And so uh, our last party before the pandemic uh, was back in November. It was at the Fun House. I'm not sure if you've ever heard mm -hmm. of it. Yep. Uh, yeah. So like our own version, a mini version of Meow Wolf created by Mondo Forma, amazing art space that they created. And we, they had a maze in the bottom floor and then a, a dance floor on the top floor. And we created basically like a theatrical sleep no more type experience in the maze where people came in, had to learn something based on each of the values of Fabulon, which then gave them a code to then get upstairs onto the dance floor. Now we can't do that, obviously. Right. Those are 250 in-person events. And so we've shifted into um, Zoom platforms, but people are tired of Zoom. And so what can we offer? And so we basically created uh, these two, three um, experiences, but two of them were called Level Up and Level Up Remastered, which were based on 16-bit video games where we created <laughs> like a side scroller. And we had basically this story about a hero who has to fight the forces of gloom uh, on planet Fabulon and has to beat three bosses to then help lift um, the fog of, 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 of gloom, basically. And um, through that, basically, we had people vote on which way they wanted to get to each boss. Um, they had to interact and grab stuff in their houses to uh, interact with the hero. Uh, and basically, this idea of gamifying combined a theatrical, theatrical experience, combined live music. So basically, each path that was voted on and chosen, they would have a different musical act. So every evening was different. Um, and uh, we managed to, uh, Canada Council for the Arts uh, gave us a small grant for that and supported nice. us. And um, yeah, I mean, we got a lot of press in, in, in October because we were being touted as one of the events that was saving Halloween. Uh, and we'd sold out basically every night and um, are really excited to explore what that means next we're using a platform called gather i'm not sure if you've heard of it at all i think i haven't really looked into it i i've just recently heard about it um because Super i've been starting it's good yeah all well right. basically look we're we're everyone's feeling the fatigue zoom fatigue that we're feeling trapped within this this uh these boxes and we can't really move beyond that experience and what gather offers up is basically like a 16-bit avatar and you walk around your maps, basically like Legend of Zelda from mm -hmm. SNES. And uh, so we are currently building out maps and we've actually kind of started to make our way into the corporate world where we're trying to build experiences that connect all of us. Because we're all getting tired of talking about COVID, but then if we don't talk about that, what else do we have to talk about? Yeah, and that's on a, on a previous episode, we had talked about there's this uh, weird phenomenon where we're not creating new memories to discuss, right? Yeah, we don't have shared experiences. Yeah, and so that's what that's what we're trying to build, and you know those shared experiences are 
having the agency within a platform like gather to walk around and choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. We are missing that spontaneity. We're missing that magic that uh, we used to have in our lives. So Fabulon is really all about kind of finding that and giving people uh, an outlet to go on a mini adventure. So multi-platform is kind of a really exciting like frontier to be exploring right now. Yeah. So, and, and the multi-platform I think is interesting. Um, when you look at sort of the the alternate reality games, so things where um, kind of like the maze that you've created, where it's something where I have to, as a participant, act out things and explore story actually physically rather than just passively watching it in a, in a program or even interactive through a video game where I'm still just sitting on my couch. I have mm-hmm. to actually take part. Um, and I often use like the sports game or like a soccer game as an analogy and say that watching a game of soccer and playing in a game of soccer are two very different things. Um, And as a fan, you might want to do both at different times. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you might not be interested in being a soccer player at all. And all you want to do is watch it. Uh, And and so that's where the, then the question comes up is uh, did audiences just gel completely and go, yes, I want to be a part of this. I want to be immersed or was there sort of, was there a level of hesitation No, I think that, um, I think at the beginning, uh, and then getting into the summer, there was a bit more hesitation because ultimately like, you know, March, April, things were starting to warm up and people wanted to get outside. Mm -hmm. But I think now that we're getting back into, you know, our caves, uh, people are starving for new, exciting Mm -hmm. content, ways to engage. I mean, that's why Among Us is so popular. Oh yeah, 100%. Blown up. And I mean, I've enjoyed it too, you know, where it's like, we're sharing a communal experience. Um, and so when we did level up remastered, uh, people loved it. And especially the, you know, we're in this weird world where especially parents have been stuck at home with their kids so much and what can they do together, uh, other than watch a screen while having an experience that they can kind of like participate in, they can run off and grab props Mm -hmm. to interact. That is family friend, friendly, I think was something that really resonated with people. And Among Us, uh, I mean, that game is a couple of years old and it's seen a resurgence now because of, of COVID. Uh, and I think I just read uh, the other day that the mystery box sort of business is booming again. Yeah. So if you remember those that were crazed for a couple of years and then started to die off and now they're coming back because it's something that you can do that's new, that's in the home. Well, even, and I, um, I bought something called the adventure book booklet, which is essentially like a booklet. It gives you, gives you a square that you have to scratch off and it gives you little icons to tell you what's underneath it. So just, you prepare for that. But like, that was something that I wanted to get because, you know, even trying to find the energy to come up with something new and creative and exciting, um, is hard these days. Yeah. So having something that offers a prompt, uh, having someone that offers a guided experience. I think is something that like we, even like outside of this, uh, you know, COVID experience, like it's something that we all love and appreciate because sometimes we just want to turn off our minds and just be taken away to a new world. And um, that's something that Fabulon has been really exciting and like wonderful at exploring for us. And like, you know, we're, we're already in talks, but like, what does 2021 look like? Mm-hmm. How can we build potentially a digital slash live experience um, through technology that embraces the safety standards that are required for because of COVID rather than like, you know, feeling like, you know, we have to wear a mask 
it's like we're exploring the idea of like well there's like a lot of cool like helmets that have come out uh in recent months that are technologically like are really sound and so like is there something that we explored that that like combines really easily with a sci-fi space aesthetic you know mm-hmm. yeah and just then builds up on the immersion yeah um so one of the things that uh you and i worked on was 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 uh damaged and mm-hmm. um I, I look really fondly back on that experience uh because of the fact that we were kind of developing the storylines in tandem. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of what we were able to put together. So um, I don't know if we've ever really delved into this on the show before, but but do you want to maybe recap uh, Damaged for us and, and just like what sure. it's about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damaged was a 12-part web series that kind of that leaned more into the thriller horror world uh about a guy named michael craven who comes across basically a mystery that involves an old serial killer called the wolf um and uh basically we follow his solo journey through trying to figure out who that is um tied in with a group of uh brothers named the braithwaite brothers and uh yeah it was it really it was an exciting experience to try and marry a narrative story through the web series with the interactive Mm -hmm. visual experience that you were creating because we definitely had to figure out like how did all this tie in together how do we weave in the clues and all that and um that was a really incredible challenge to try and and wrap my head around that Mm -hmm. um and again, to figure out how to engage audiences on like multiple levels, I think it's something that was really fresh and 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 it's something actually that, that I think that experience has translated into like me thinking about things in fab in the fabulon world, really, right? Um, you know, barriers for entry. How do you really connect and engage people? How do you you know sprinkle the breadcrumbs to get people to follow along, and then offer this gamified like reward at the end that really feels like you've achieved something, mm-hmm. um, it, and, and that it's satisfying is 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 a really unique challenge. Yeah. And it's it's been that sort of that uh, that marrying of linear storyline and an interactive storyline that has always been the challenge in any of the sort of work that I've done, especially when it's working with. Um, you know, TV shows or films where uh, sometimes the whole season's already in the can when they come and ask for an interactive experience and there's literally nothing you can change. And and, and in our specific and damage, what you and I were able to create together was what I think is probably one of the most rewarding endings I've been able to, to, to craft for an interactive companion. Like mm-hmm. I felt that it really did add a lot of context to the, to the full story. Um, how how did you feel as you started to get into this you know the concepts of multi platform and st- start to you know research the the platforms that you want to work with? Um, did you find it daunting? Was it something as like a, a a traditional filmmaker and storyteller you were like, whoa, I I really don't know what to do with with interactive story and with you know giving over agency of characters to to the audience. There are elements of it being challenging because. It's so new for audiences that, you know, trying to get them to even understand like what the damaged experience was is, is, is hard, you know, it's, it's, it's not traditional whatsoever. And, um, 
And so it's trying to figure out like, what are those hooks to get people on board, which part of it is like establishing the rules, getting them to understand like what an immersive digital experience mm -hmm. actually means. Even, you know, like when we're pitching gather, for instance, like the challenge that we're finding right now is everyone's so used to zoom. Mm -hmm. And so to say, well, you can have zoom, but you can move around and stuff like that is, is so foreign to people that, that that's kind of been the bit of the barrier of like not quite understanding it. So I think like similarly to this idea of like a linear like film that we're watching, this idea of trying to then explain to people, well, there's this companion piece where you can find out more. And, you know, in a film where you're like, wow, I really wonder what that backstory is. And like films don't really have the time to touch mm -hmm. on that. You can do that. And then it's like, well, how do you get people to care about wanting to engage, you know, more of that content um, is is what I definitely find um, as the challenge. And I think, to be honest, you know, another challenge that I recognize too is like I didn't even quite really understand the immersive experience when I was first starting to work with you and Ryan. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and I think there was a level of me wanting to really like, you know, because linear was my world. It's like, well it has, the digital has to service this. Um, and then I, I came around to it, but like, I think it was definitely like, I had to unwrap mm -hmm. my own wiring to understand like, well, no, it's not about one servicing the other. It's about how do we really make a companion experience that is fulfilling. Um, that like ultimately like you still, like the, the linear web series was the primary focus because that's like what was going to, you know, you know, yep. what we, we got the money for and stuff like, but still like just to make sure that like what we were building out will like really engage people and excite people and give them a more fulfilling world experience, you know? And it's always a challenge because, uh, you know, you want to make the, the companion piece matter, but you also don't want to make it uh, mandatory. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's like, again, I, I still feel that context is the way to go because you're not taking away anything. And I think that's very important is, is not to diminish uh, the, the linear experience, not to diminish mm -hmm. the, I just want to sit down on a couch and watch this really good story. It, that needs to be a good story. And, and you've, you can see in cases, maybe not for interactivity, but for world building or for like setting up a franchise, very often films just like um, they sacrifice the story that they are telling to set up something else like a, a, a franchise or a sequel or a, you know a video game and and if you don't care about that stuff you're sitting in the audience you're like, well what the hell was that about like and then you know like your friend leans over and says they're, they're making a tv show on netflix it's all about setting that up and like i don't i don't care yeah 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 so um and and, and just staying in this realm, uh, not necessarily about, about multi-platform or, or interactive, but I think one of the reasons that the Marvel films uh, have done as well as they have is that there's a level of meta to it. Level what's right? Meta awareness, I think is maybe the better right. term. Yeah. And okay. what I mean is we have to take these characters out of their fictional universe, discussing things that the fans would, would discuss. And, and play. And play. And play, and yeah. Play. And that's where I think you're right. I think, you know, that comparison between Marvel and Disney. And that's where I think that that comparison with Star Wars too. I just feel like it, they didn't play mm. enough. They didn't allow themselves to play. No. And that really is like ultimately DC's biggest flaw is that they take it. The movies take themselves too, Way seriously. too seriously. 
gritty and dark. And that's why like Wonder Woman was fresh because it wasn't that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the and- issue that Disney had, or sorry, that Star Wars had, in my opinion, is that they they just put fan service in the film. And I was like, wow, they're they're really being precious with their Star Wars. Don't be so precious with it. Break some well, shit. You know, and you also like you were mentioning too about this a lot of films are based on IP and like you know the the notion of original originality is is hard mm-hmm. to find time in Hollywood and so even with those films I think that's the films and the last Jedi still had its problems but at least it was the most original of the three and that's where I think those films really fell flat is like the biggest studio on earth couldn't take a risk to be original with as you said, like this idea mm. that it was fragile. It's like it there was nothing fragile about it. You could that's the that's the franchise you could take a risk with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean, I would love to hear like where you see multi-platform mm. and like digital experiences going because I feel like uh as much as we have like talked about that space like you're really involved in it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're in it. And that's, and, and, you know, whereas I'm kind of doing the, like the live theatrical stuff, it's still like a different world. I'm really curious to see like what you're excited about in, in that space. And it's interesting that you say that because I think one of the things um, like literally uh, as the pandemic was, was ramping up, I was in Orlando uh, with uh, a bunch of Ryerson students and we were doing a whole thing on, on themed entertainment. And we went down, we went to Universal Orlando, we went through the Harry Potter and we went through Rise of the Resistance or through, yeah, Rise of the Resistance and the whole um, Star Wars uh, Black Aspire Outpost and that the sort of immersive entertainment quality of those and, and really, you know, took account of what each land was doing differently. And in my opinion, there's a lot of reasons why Harry Potter actually wins out. I'm a much bigger Star Wars fan, but, um, mm-hmm. and that that's a whole other story that we'll have to have coffee yeah. or drinks over. Um, yeah. But the key sort of takeaway was I'm very interested in uh, like the full multi-platform experience, which includes um, installation and theme entertainment and, and out of home experience, which unfortunately has taken a massive hit because of, of COVID, right? So now the question becomes, okay, we can't go to theme parks. We can't go to museums. We can't do these installations. And we, we we've seen how the Van Gogh immersive uh, experience yeah, has done the drive drive-in version. You know, that's one way that they were able to get around it. Um, but we're probably going to see a lot more content that has to be done online. So, so one of the reasons that I've been really fascinated by integrative content creation and and Twitch is how now it's not just about the, the gameplay experience in a video game. It's also about the video content that comes out of it. And we've seen in recent uh, months, the, the problems that that causes with copyright, right. With games, not having licensed the music in their games for enough so that they're, players can actually stream it and we now have companies like cd project red saying that cyberpunk 2077 will have um settings for you to turn off anything that's copyright infringing so you can actually stream their content so they're very cognizant of their fan base that's creating this content but um 
for me, like the one thing that has, has gotten me through this pandemic is role-playing games mm. and playing them online on zoom uh, and using tool sets. And I've realized that a lot of the tool sets that exist and even the ones that sort of have been um, uh, announced during COVID uh, are very much a, um, a toolkit for, en for anyone to play any game. Uh, and that's to me is akin to the sandbox video game. It's trying to do everything for everyone. Right. And uh, if we talk about lower budget or we talk about like very simple stories in film, I think the, the online role-playing game version of that is create a service or create a, a program or an application for one game. And it does that one game like very well. Very well. So yeah. that's sort of where I've been looking is like, is there now a space for a tabletop role-playing game to enter a digital space so that people can play over Zoom? Uh, because I honestly, I I've, haven't played this many <laughs> consecutive games since I was in high school. And it's it's actually been really, really nice to, you know, socialize, play games and not, wow. and while I'm still looking at a screen, I never really feel like I am. Share an experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, 100%, I think that's great, yeah. So what about you? What's next? What's next for Richard Rodder? Oh, man. Um, well, I've got three horror shorts that I'm almost wrapped up writing that I've, I'm kind of hoping to shoot over the winter. That's going to be my winter project. Um, Fabulon is, has started to make its way into uh, immersive experiences online in the corporate world. So we've started to um, have some really big meetings with some really big clients because it seems that everyone's really suffering the same fatigue mm. um, and are just looking for someone to create experiences. And so we're uh, doubling down on that. It's been really exciting to see the people that have been reaching out to us for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, like right now, whereas it's tough to be shooting, it's a good time to be writing. So I've actually got a bunch of um, television series in various stages of development, as you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they're kind of like definitely more in the vein of thriller or, um, you know, it's one of those things that's interesting too. It's like what horror will always be universal and, uh, and there will always be an audience for it. But like right now, what type of horror? are people into and they don't really want one about viruses no uh, or contagions or something which is totally fair um so really being mindful of that and actually like using thinking about that too like one of the films that i've written um explores uh shooting through like a portrait mode because of like how we've learned to use the phone i mean not just this year but that that we've really like been exposed more to that type of screen over the past nine months and i just feel like why not break some rules why not explore that so um that's kind of what i've got over the next uh few months winter is always a quieter time for the film industry so yeah. really using that time to recharge um you know yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I've got going on creatively. And then we do have some like really exciting chats with uh, uh, some people next year for a potential like live in-person event that would lean into, um, as I said, like COVID safety stuff um, through Fabulon, just trying to figure out the details of that because who knows what next year is going to look like. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, um, Richard, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Uh, very happy to have you here and it was a really interesting conversation 
you know, I wish you all the best. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a follow-up at some point in the future. I'd love that. Thanks, man. Really, really great to see you. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content contained in this episode is copyright Stefan Grambart and Hugh Elliott. Intro voice by Jeff Wright. Intro music track is Energy by Not Of from their 2015 album Peak. Questions or comments can be sent to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Any other information can be found at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Yeah.